This is Van Collar listeners. This is Mo Amir, and I am recording my first podcast in a month. The last time that I recorded a podcast was March 6th, and the world has certainly changed since then. So from now until the foreseeable future, I'll be doing remote recordings. It's a completely different medium of interview for me, but I'm stoked on the guests that I've lined up. We're going to continue deep diving into local issues, which of course includes COVID-19. We're still going to have fun guests as well. And you know, maybe this is also a great opportunity to bring in guests that I couldn't physically bring into the studio before. So as always, enjoy, hit me up with your feedback, and shoot me a review on iTunes. But most of all, be healthy and be colorful. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I'm joined by a popular returning guest all the way back from episode 46 in July of last year. He is a medical doctor, a lawyer, and of course, a political leader. Since 2013, he's been a member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia, representing Vancouver Quilchenna. He is a former Minister of Technology, Innovation, and Citizen Services and is the former Minister of Advanced Education. He is, of course, the leader of the official opposition in the Legislative Assembly in this province, the leader of the BC Liberals. He is Andrew Wilkinson. Mr. Wilkinson, how are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you doing? You know, all things considered, I'm pretty good. I'm healthy. And despite the challenges we're all facing, I do consider myself lucky as well. It's the strangest thing, you know, because I went on a bike ride around Stanley Park this morning and it's a glorious spring day and everything should be blissful and fine. Mm-hmm. And if you were coming from another planet, you'd arrive and say, gee, these things seem to be okay, but why is there this police vehicle blocking the cars getting into the park? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what, why, is, uh, why are the streets so empty? Why are people staying inside on such a nice day, right? Absolutely. And so we're all adjusting to this. And I think it's quite variable how people manage this. Uh I'm fortunate. I've got my two kids back unexpectedly. They're in their mid-20s. And my wife's here in the house. So we are enjoying meals together and having time to fix some things in the house that haven't been done for years and years. But that's wearing thin. We're all getting a bit uh, testy. Sure. (laughs) I really feel for the people who are, you know... If you're in a thousand foot condo and one or both of you is unemployed and you got one or two kids rattling around the house without enough to do, it's got to be hard. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's also why I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I think there are a lot of people facing a lot of different challenges. And and thankfully, you know, we, we're all facing stress, but uh, there's variant degrees of how, how people are handling this and, and what they're facing. Before we get started into the real meat of the interview, I have to say, when you were on the podcast last year, I went on CKNW and I told everyone that that episode was going to be the most talked about BC political podcast of the entire year. And I think it did get people talking. And I think that statement holds up. So I want to thank you for coming back onto the program. Although, as we just said, you know, things have really changed since we last spoke. Well, if you said last July when you and I had a good exchange 
Uh, fast forward to April of 2020 and, you know, take that street scene that I described with police cars blocking the entrance to Stanley Park. The streets are empty. Mm-hmm. Think, what on earth happened? How did that happen? Is there <laughs> a radiation leak or something? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we all have to be thankful for the circumstances we've got. British Columbia is turning the corner on this epidemic, but I'm sure we'll get into it. We are looking to the provincial and federal governments to tell us what the plan is going forward because it's not all clear there is one. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people may be wondering what the opposition party in the BC Ledge is currently doing in terms of work. Obviously, during this COVID-19 crisis, we see the government up front and center. There's a lot of press conferences. They are communicating with the public. I know the official opposition is also communicating with the public, but I want to get it from you. What are you and the BC Liberals currently doing in serving your posts as MLAs? Three layers to that. The first layer is the constituency work. I'm in an urban constituency without a lot of uh, provincial uh, services like roads and hospitals. In fact, there are none. So my role is more straightforward. If you're an MLA in Kamloops or Connell, it's busy because people have all kinds of issues and problems and they're not sure where to turn, so they go to the MLA's office. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're now operating kind of virtually and sometimes there'll be a staff person inside, but they're not taking any visitors. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of busy work with email, phone calls, and so forth, sorting out people's problems. So that's the first layer. That's the retail work that every elected person has to do. Sure. The second layer is what we are calling the positive support for the biomedical issues going on. Bonnie Henry is doing a very good job. It's not an easy job. We have been supporting her throughout. My experience as a medical doctor makes that more straightforward because I talk her language. Mm-hmm. And I think I know where the puck is going, to use a hockey metaphor. But um, that's the most straightforward part of what we do. Our health critic is a man from Kelowna called Norm Letnick, and he talks with Adrian Dix every single day, mm-hmm. and they problem solve. A good example of that was there's a lot of concern in the Kootenays about people from Alberta coming to the Kootenays to kind of escape the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, are they overloading local services? Are there not groceries? And if people do fall sick, are they going to be able to deal with it in the Kootenays? So that was processed through our relationship with the Ministry of Health. And the uh, outshot outcome is that uh, Adrian Dix and his counterpart in Alberta, a guy called Tyler Shandro, are basically asking British Columbia and Albertans not to go back and forth between the two provinces unless mm-hmm. they really have to. So that's the kind of positive cooperative side of things. The third layer is what we're concerned about in terms of the economic situation, and then we can get into that in more detail. The feds have been very active and putting out a lot of money. Most of us know about this um, uh, emergency response benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's to replace a lost income for people who've lost their jobs. And make no mistake, there are 150,000 people in the hospitality business in British Columbia are unemployed right now. There are probably another half a million people in all these related and collected things, small businesses who are unemployed right now. Yeah, devastating. They need that uh, federal benefit program. The concern that we're raising with the provincial government is, well, the feds are taking care of the people who have lost salaried income because they're an employee, Mm -hmm. there is not a lot going on for that hairdressing salon commercial drive where three of them had the lease together and there's no work and no income and the landlord's saying, are you going to pay or not? And there's exactly that scenario. There's a woman on commercial drive who runs a salon about two weeks ago on the radio and she was saying, look, 
I'm just going to close doors and walk away. It's over. Yeah. I can't do this. And so that's where the provincial government's going to have to take a much more active role in keeping our Main Street businesses alive and well, because we don't want to come back after this. And whether you're in Victoria or the West End of Vancouver or in uh, Chilliwack and go to your Main Street downtown, Robson Street, Denman Street, and think, what happened? Two-thirds of them are empty. Yeah. Yeah. And all the fixtures are being sold in a receivership auction. That's what we have to avoid because that's not only destroying value in people's livelihoods that they built up, it means they're not going to be employing anybody. Mm-hmm. So we've got a challenge in front of us and we're very concerned that we don't see any kind of plan from the provincial government because this does land squarely with the provincial government. The feds will do what they can, but they're not responsible for small business. Sure. And that's interesting to me because from my vantage point, it seems like your party's position has been very clear. You're setting aside partisanship and you're supporting the government during this pandemic. And there may be, in theory, things that you would do differently in power. So, you know, why is it as the official opposition, whose job it is to critique the government, has your party taken the stance to effectively back off any outspoken criticisms of the government right now? Well, on the biomedical stuff, the management of the epidemic, it's much more important to have a uniform position with people in British Columbia than to have a whole bunch of dissent and second guessing. Mm -hmm. We see more than enough of that on the web these days with these people who have no knowledge or experience of medicine, statistics, epidemiology. Sure, yeah. They're quite happy to tell you how the world should work and how everybody who's qualified is an idiot. And we don't need to have the official opposition amplifying that kind of nonsense. Sure. So we have a pretty discerning eye on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I do my share of reading in Lancet, New England Journal, and everywhere else to make sure that we're on the right track of this epidemic. And we have turned the corner here, thanks to Bonnie Henry's plan. And we're hopeful that the number of hospital admissions keeps going down. Mm -hmm. There is a real concern certainly everywhere in North America, about a second wave. And we've seen it already. If you look at the front page of the New York Times yesterday, there are the graphs showing the secondary epidemic in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. Hmm. And they had basically completely controlled this. Imagine doing that in Hong Kong, eh? the densest place in the world. And they got this thing pretty well under control. And Mm -hmm. then travelers showed up who weren't properly uh, managed and controlled and they got a second wave of the epidemic that is killing people in Hong Kong today. Yeah. So that's what we've got to be careful of, is managing and controlling the second wave. We were pushing the feds and the provincial government pretty hard about this airport entry thing, because relatives of mine came in on March 14th and March 30th, respectively. The March 14th thing was a bit of a joke. They just said, are you sick? Oh, well, no. Okay, off you go. March 30th thing was, well, gee, have you had a fever or a bad cough? Are you feeling really dead down sick? If not, oh, carry on. Even March 30th, hey? Wow. Yeah. I mean, let's get our act together, folks. So they've finally done it. And uh, they now have some proper uh, self-isolation rules and requirements. And if you can't satisfy the rules, you're going into quarantine. And that is... Mm -hmm overdue. That should have happened two weeks ago. Yeah, I agree. So if you were to give a letter grade to the BCNDP right now for its handling of the crisis so far, 
what letter grade would you assign them? Well, I think I'd separate out the professional civil service types like Bonnie Henry and the Centers for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. I'd give them an A. There is nothing to objectively complain about that any smarty pants on the internet could have done any better. Mm -hmm. In terms of Adrian Dix, the health minister, he's probably getting an A minus or B plus now. I mean, he's doing pretty well, but um, there are some things I would have done differently than him in terms of pushing about the Alberta border and pushing the feds on the issue of quarantine and isolation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, B plus, A minus. On the economic side of things, there's a blank for that letter grade because the the province really hasn't done anything. Hmm. And so until they hand in the assignment, it's hard to give them a grade. (laughs) And right now, it you know, you all remember those college-university transcripts. There was, what, a W for withdrew and uh, like a J for did not appear for final exam. Right, (laughs) yeah. It's hard to grade somebody when they haven't done any work. So we're looking for the province to do an awful lot more. You heard, I think it was yesterday, John Horgan went on uh, the radio and was saying, okay, we've got a big mental health initiative. People are stressed. They're isolated. They're feeling vulnerable. They're uh, bothered and worried, uh, whether it's seniors or students or whoever. So I'm going to announce a big program. My name is John Horgan, and here I'm announcing $1 per person in BC. That's $5 million. Hmm. And tell me what you're going to do with a buck. Probably not a lot, to be honest yeah, with you. It's like half a bounty <laughs> bar. It's a, it's a quarter of a, a drip coffee. Yeah. You know, it's half a donut at Jim Hortons. The economy is obviously going to experience a recession. I mean, the global economy is going to experience a, a recession and a contraction because of this pandemic. Obviously, you are being critical of of some of the economic policy being put forward, and you're saying that you're watching it with a discerning eye. But is it a hard sell to blame the BC NDP for the recession next year, based on the fact that there is going to be an election next year? This is easy to bring up as a metaphor. If there's a flood or an avalanche or a hurricane or an earthquake, you don't blame the government for that. Mm-hmm. In most circumstances, it's just unfortunate and tragic, and you hope there's some insurance coverage for some of the people involved. Mm-hmm. What matters is the response to the avalanche or the flood or the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And when the response consists of you know, these token things like this mental health announcement or radio silence, that's a real worry because people look to government, certainly in Canada, and say, so what are you planning to do about this? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the mayor of Vancouver really stepped in the mud two days ago when he said, well, gee whiz, you know, city of Vancouver, give me $200 million out of the clear blue sky. People say, what? From where? And yeah. who's supposed to do that? The people of Cranbrook supposed to put 50 bucks in an envelope and send it to Mayor Kennedy Stewart. So that was a poorly timed and poorly uh, designed effort on his part mm-hmm. because we're all – are feeling the pinch and people are worried about their cash flow. Some people have none at all. Let's be clear mm-hmm. about that. Go Correct. back to that woman at the hair salon and commercial drive. She is destitute now. Everything she had was invested in that salon. The doors are closed up. She's not sure if it's ever going to open again. She's gone home to weep into her coffee and wonder how she's going to pay for groceries. Mm-hmm. So the politicians have got to be pretty astute about this and not wander around saying, give me 200 million bucks. That's just yeah. a dumb thing to say. So 
the next level up is what is the provincial government going to do to support the uh, small business sector? Employees will be sorted out with the federal programs. I think we all know that by now. Mm-hmm. But the people who are not employees, and there are over a million of them in British Columbia, people who are contractors, people who work for themselves, people who actually own their own hair salon or corner store or bookshop or whatever it is, cafe, they are terrified right now. And something that was announced actually was Monday our time, Tuesday Australia time. The Australian national government, which has, it's a different structure there. They do more of what provinces do here. Okay. Uh, They said, well, look, folks, we've got this emerging credit crisis where nobody's going to pay each other. Yeah. This is going to turn into a huge problem. So here's the deal, folks. This is for the entire nation of Australia. Here's the deal. Commercial rents will be paid at the same proportion as the earnings have been maintained by the the company. So the hair salon will pay zero. They have no earnings now. Mm -hmm. The takeout restaurant that's got 15% of its prior earnings will pay 15%. The grocery store will pay 100%. And we'll have an arbitration mediation process to sort this out. And the gap, we are making available uh, interest-free loans to cover this so that uh, everything can keep moving that the hair salon doesn't have to think the landlord's going to kick me out because I haven't paid for two months. Mm-hmm. They can say, oh, man, I'm in the hair salon business. I don't have to pay taxes because I'm not earning anything. There's no GST or HST or sales tax or anything what I'm doing. I now have the rent monkey off my back. Yeah. And I can think about a future and get some hope and make some plans. Because, you know, commercial rents are not cheap. Mm-hmm. And so whether you're running a car repair joint or – Uh, coffee shop, it'll wipe you out if you're out of business for two months. Mm -hmm. So what the Australians did was think through that, think ahead, give people some hope and some reassurance and say that government is there on their side. Government is going to make this happen. It's not picking winners and losers, not saying good guys and bad guys. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, from the British Columbia government, there has been total silence on this. And the only thing they've done is announce on the renter's side for people who are residential tenants that there would be 500 bucks in rent subsidy payable directly to the landlord. They, oh, how's that going to work? Well, you have to, if you've lost your job, you go into that federal website, the CERB thing, yeah. sign up for your 2000 bucks a month, and apparently you'll add on to that an assignment of 500 bucks of provincial money to your landlords after filling all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nice, except then they came along and somebody said, well, is that per tenant or is it per household? And they said, oh, we didn't think about that. What if three or four people are sharing? Do they get 2,000 bucks? And they hummed and hawed and said, okay, well, gee, I guess we mixed that up. So it's $300 per tenant to a maximum of $500 per person per household. Okay. And, you know, they just keep fiddling with this stuff and not thinking it through. And once again, that doesn't satisfy either the tenant or the landlord because tenant says, well, I'm still on for the rest of the rent at some point. I can't be evicted. So I guess what I'll do is just stiff the landlord and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And the landlord says, well, this isn't going to work. So you create all this tension within the landlord-tenant relationship and they're at each other. And if you can imagine yourself, you know, you're the hard struggling woman with the hair salon in Burnaby who finally saved up enough money to uh, buy a tiny little place with a basement suite, and she's totally dependent on the basement suite income, and it goes to zero, she's got double whammy. Yeah. 
And so, you know, government has a role to say, look, folks, just like commercial tenants in Australia, everybody can calm down. There's going to be cash flow. You're going to be taken care of on both ends of the equation. There's no need to fight between the two of you. There are no good guys and bad guys in this. Everybody's falling into that victim category. So let's fix it rather than point fingers. Has this been buried in the newspaper? Because I actually have not heard you or the BC Liberals come out and be this critical of the BCNDP's policies. Well, we're finding the vehicles. I was on CKNW on Tuesday morning with this stuff on um, CBC Radio Vancouver yesterday morning. There's a Globe Mail interview. But there's so much news coverage of Mm -hmm. what you can call the biomedical and also the international because there's no shortage of news out of New York City and Italy and you name it, filling up the newspapers. Yeah. Even a guy like you who pays a lot of attention to media will have a hard time finding the economic messages from anybody right now. I mean, I'd be surprised if you knew the details of that change in the rental support system. No, no. I mean, it didn't affect me, so I wasn't looking into it. Yeah. So we're looking forward to the time, we're calling it phase two, where there'll be more discussion about these economic issues because, you know, folks have been kind of confused and disoriented for the last three weeks. Yeah. It's happened very fast. Oh, yeah. And now that people are sitting down and saying, well, can we still afford to go to the grocery store and use the Visa card? Because the bill comes on the 18th of the month. It's going to be a whopper. So Mm -hmm. people are going to start to really get financially concerned in about a week. And we foresee that that's where we're going to have to be more visible, saying you're missing some things, John Horgan. You're actually not paying attention. And people need to hear that there's a plan. This is also something strange that we've certainly noticed, and you might have as well. Bonnie Henry's out basically six days a week with mm-hmm. Adrian Dix. They're doing their job. As I said, you know, she gets an A, and Adrian probably gets an A- minus or B+. Plus. And um, where's John Horgan? Well, about once a week, they trot him out with something that seems to be a kind of almost marginal, that people aren't paying that much attention. And yet every governor and premier in North America is on TV radio, the web, every day, talking about the status in their communities, talking about what needs to get done. Mm-hmm. So we're a bit puzzled why John Horgan's so invisible. So you feel like he's been quite absent in this crisis? Well, if I were the uh, man responsible for a $63 billion budget and for 100% of the healthcare budget in British Columbia, and 5 million people worried about the health and well-being and how they're going to make their a visa bill payment in two weeks, I'd want to be out there reassuring them and telling them that, you know, we're stronger together. We can work on this. There are plans, the Australian rental plan I talked about, you know, a better way of doing things. But instead, Mm -hmm. we just see these dribs and drabs of stuff like they're waiting for the feds to spend the money and they're trying not to spend the money here, hoping the feds will do it all for them. But, you know, we've got the Premier of Nova Scotia out there actively uh, stating what they're doing um, in Ontario, whether you like Mr. Ford or not, he's now enormously popular for just mm-hmm. grabbing the bull by the horns. That's right. You can disagree with him, but he's got the guts to be out there and do it. Sure. And uh, same thing's happening in Alberta and across the prairies, but we don't see it at all here in British Columbia for reasons that aren't clear. 
the American governors, you know, we're learning all their names by heart. Cuomo in New York and Newsom in California and Inslee in Washington. They're out front and center on this stuff. Yeah. The last I checked, Cuomo was a 10 to 1 underdog to win the Democratic nomination. Even though Biden's got it wrapped up, he's people are betting on him. So well, Cuomo right. has a very in-your-face, look, folks, this is what's happening approach. Yeah. And when they have this scale of disaster they've got in New York City right now, mm-hmm. I think that's the only way you can do it is just put all the cards on the table and have a plan. Yeah. And I guess that's a concern here in BC. We're seeing the cards on the table with Bonnie Henry, but we don't see anybody talking about what's really going to be bothering people in terms of how they make their ends meet in the month of May. Yeah. We got, you know, 5 million people here, at least a million people in this province are in big trouble. Let's talk about one of the concerns that some people have begun to raise. Former Premier Christy Clark, she had a very unpopular comment about how every dollar spent in the COVID crisis will be debt for our kids to pay. Is that the right way of looking at this response? Well, you know, from my medical training, I take a slightly different perspective on that. We've got the enemy within. We've got a virus out there, and we have to defeat the virus, fight the virus, don't fight each other. Mm-hmm. That means you arm the troops. You get out there, and you do whatever you can for the folks working in emergency rooms, for the people out in the, the paramedics out in the street. You do whatever you can. Uh, you know, we've, we as a society, Adrian Dix and company, have cleared out 4,000 hospital beds. That means... Tens of thousands of people are not getting elective surgery and biopsies and all kinds of things they need to get done mm-hmm. because the premise is to keep those beds available for a massive influx of patients like we saw in Italy, Spain, and uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, that hasn't happened. Am I going to blame them if we're lucky enough that it doesn't happen? You can forget that right now. Yeah. That was very prudent contingency planning. And if it if the virus had taken control here and run amok, then we'd be needing every single one of those beds. So you start with the premise of what's the demand to fix the problem? How are you going to fix the problem? Mm -hmm. That's the biological medical side of things. The next thing we talked about earlier is the financial side of things where we have a lot of things to point out that John Horgan is just ignoring. And then at the end of the day, we're all going to see some pretty big numbers in terms of debt, especially federally. It's going to be just a stinking big bill. Yeah, There's no good alternative now. This is really, it doesn't look like it when you look out the window, but this is really that wartime feeling. So are you saying you disagree with her perspective in terms of looking at the money being spent in the crisis as debt? Well, I, you know, didn't actually see Christie's mark firsthand. I heard that she was focused on the debt and I thought, well, I'd focus on health and well-being first. Sure. So... I didn't see her remark directly. There's going to be a big debt to deal with, but that's not the priority right now. Sure. Let's move away from COVID and let's talk about something that you said about a month ago, and it was about the spec tax. At the Vancouver Board of Trade, you said that you would abolish the NDP phony spec tax. And I don't actually know if that was a quote of yours, but I think that was how Jane Thornthwaite had phrased it on Twitter. We are seeing real estate take a huge hit during this crisis, like all sectors, or most sectors, I should say. Are you still firm on abolishing the speculation and vacancy tax if elected premier? 
if we are back into the kind of uh, thriving economy and strong real estate market that we had after about 2011, mm-hmm. yes. But folks, all bets are off right now. Yeah. We have millions of people in this country who are wondering how to buy their next grocery bill rather than buy a condo. So we are going to have to, as a society, look at the overall housing situation and the price of housing in this country and particularly in this province and this city and say, what do we do now? Because there's a very strong chance that the entire tax structure related to housing will have to be overhauled from top to bottom to get them going again. Yeah. You know, to use that wartime analogy, they brought soldiers back from World War II, gave them basically almost interest-free mortgages and got them all building houses willy-nilly. So there are massive suburbs across North America that were built from 1947 to 1950 to get the economy going again, to give all those post-military families somewhere to go. There was a massive baby boom and that's how they got through it. But they didn't say, well, let's recreate the housing market of 1938. I guess there's just, there would be some people who think that even in a recovery mode, you would want to disincentivize speculation. You'd want to disincentivize empty homes as much as possible. Yeah. And what we said about the NDP's phony speculation tax has nothing to do with speculation. It's an asset tax. What we said about it is replace it with a real speculation tax, which would be a tax on the flipping of the paper contracts for condos. Mm-hmm. which happens when a market is overheated and there's excessive demand for the existing supply of new condos even before they get built. And to be blunt about it, we'll be fortunate if this economy gets back to that situation. That would be a good thing because it would mean that people had money to spend and invest. We have to hit the brake pedal and probably put on the parking brake now and say, let's assess where we are in terms of the housing situation once we have this COVID thing under control. And that's probably going to be well into 2021 that this housing conversation needs to be answered in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Construction is still underway. It's an industry that uh, the people working in it can work far enough apart and things keep going. They're pretty well paid. It keeps uh, the groceries on the table at home. So we're hopeful that the supply of housing will continue to grow, but there's no guarantee that the purchasers are going to show up. Sure. Because there's so many people being under financial stress. So, you know, if we have the, a repeat of this conversation a year and we're talking about the need for a, a Wilkinson style tax on uh, flipping paper contracts, that would be a good thing because it would mean that people were back in the housing market and we could do something to help them to keep the price from being toyed with by speculators. Mm -hmm. Let's shift gears here again. And I want to ask you about Ginny Sims. You said that British Columbians should be appalled that Ginny Sims resigned from her post as a cabinet minister and from the BC NDP caucus due to an RCMP investigation. Your party raised many questions about her conduct. There was a lot of rhetoric being thrown around. But Special Prosecutor Richard Peck and the BC Prosecution Service found no evidence to support the allegations of any criminal wrongdoing. 
do you or the BC Liberals owe Ginny Sims an apology? Absolutely not. So <laughs> let's start. Why not? <laughs> to proceed with a criminal investigation in British Columbia, the Crown prosecutor, in this case it was Rick Peck who processed it as a special prosecutor, has to say to themselves, is there a substantial likelihood of conviction? Is this in the public interest to prosecute? And can I convict this person on a standard that it's beyond reasonable doubt, which is hard to meet? Mm -hmm. So using those criteria, Mr. Peck obviously concluded that even though Ginny Sims as minister responsible for information completely ignored the law on freedom of information, violated it flagrantly and defiantly so, completely defined in the legislature, that's probably not a criminal offense, so Mr. Peck let that one go. Even though Ginny Sims was entertaining all kinds of people in her constituency office and apparently wanting to do favors for them and telling her staff not to enter it into the records of the office, and this is something we do on the side, wink, wink, that apparently didn't uh, amount to enough of uh, in the criminal law, the actus reus, the, the actual um, activity that is subject to prosecution. So the fact that uh, Mr. Peck concluded that they couldn't meet the high standard required for criminal prosecution doesn't mean that Ginny Sims is some kind of good human being. It means that she's someone with atrociously bad judgment who's manipulative and bullies her staff and should not be a minister in any government. So you're saying that Ginny Sims did, in fact, act inappropriately, but it can't be proven to be criminal. Am I right in understanding sort of yeah, that interpretation? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Her, yeah. her treatment of the freedom of information thing was completely inappropriate. She's the minister responsible for managing freedom of information. The NDP crapped all over us as BC Liberals for our manage of it. And lo and behold, they turned around and violated every rule in the book and were flagrant in it. They were completely unapologetic, and that's a complete violation of her oath of office. She should be ashamed of herself. Do you think she should resign, like just as an MLA? Well, I would be surprised if they put her back into to a cabinet position because she's shown a stunning lack of judgment mm -hmm. and has not earned the, the confidence of the people of British Columbia. This is all interesting to me because last time we sat together, and now we're social distancing, I can't even see where you are, but the last time that we sat together, we did speak about the rough-and-tumble nature of the BC legislature. And it seems like during this pandemic, as you've also noted, there is a more unified front, especially on the biomedical aspect of this pandemic. It sounds like we are going to return to partisanship once everything reconvenes. I mean, the way you're talking about Ginny Sims right now, it doesn't sound like there's been a fundamental change in the culture of partisanship. Well, let's remember that we have a very activist left-wing NDP that's doing an awful lot of favors for their friends and organized labor in the middle of a crisis. We will be pointing all of that out and saying what is in the best interest of the people of British Columbia and when is the NDP going to pay attention to this crushing uh, burden of taxation regulation they put onto small businesses? You might have heard the interview with the guy who ran Federico's Supper Club. His name is Federico Fuoco. Mm -hmm. Very decent guy. He's a musician, ran a fine restaurant and commercial drive for 21 years, I think it was, and he quit Yeah, because they couldn't carry on. And he was interviewed, and they, the interview was based on the idea, well, gee, it looks like uh, the 
coronavirus put you under? And he said, no, 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 pause. What put me under was the cumulative effect of the NDP's employer's health tax, the excessive regulation they've placed on it, the fees and, and things that I have to pay to the provincial government. They've cranked up the cost of labor for him. And he said the culmination of all of that with property taxes going through the roof is that he had gone from making pretty good margins 10 years ago to barely making any money at all. And so the concept of his restaurant was at risk already. And then when you close the doors for coronavirus, it's all over. Mm -hmm. So we have to take Frederico's story back to the NDP and say, this is what you are doing by piling on one cost after another onto the employer. If the employer ceases to function, then dozens of people are out of work and there's no job to go back to, Mm -hmm. regardless of the coronavirus. And they just do not seem to compute that, that we are all in this together. British Columbia is a small business economy. 98% of employment in BC is in small businesses. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, who are the really big employers in BC? Really big. Well, there's Rio Tinto Alcan up north. There's Tech Minerals. There's Telus. And then you say, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. After that, it's kind of Air Canada. You know, who else is a huge employer? It's all small business. Yeah. They're actually not that big an employer. But um, unless we can make sure that small business is thriving and viable, we're not going to get these tech startups that we're so in love with because they're all struggling small businesses. They're going to have trouble finding financing after all this settles down. And the NDP have not yet figured that out. Well, fair enough. Maybe I was being a little idealistic and expecting more cooperative relationships. And as I said earlier in the podcast, the job of the official opposition is to critique the government. I suppose I'm more curious about the culture of partisanship. I mean, there is rhetoric that goes from both sides. And I would be, I want to mention a comment that was made in my podcast with Tamara Taggart earlier this year. She brought up an incident where apparently you clucked at Selena Robinson in the BC legislature. And you and I have discussed this. I've discussed this with David Eby as well. And I've, I've criticized the government as well on, on this. Will things be more civil moving forward after this sort of black swan event? Can we have well, more civil have politics? Separate out the to and fro in the legislature. You know, the things that don't quite make the recordings coming from the mouths of people like David Eby and Rob Fleming, the Minister of Education, are really just deeply, utterly vicious things to say. And they never make it into any recording because they mutter them just loud enough that they don't make it onto a legislative recording and can't be broadcast. So that stuff's gratuitous. We don't do that. I mean, that's high school. What's the point of that? Mm-hmm. So that's one level of partisanship that I think is beneath everybody, and they should probably grow up and stop treating it like high school. The second layer is uh, the necessary role of pushing them on certain points to see where they'll respond rather than just blowing it off and dismissing it. Mm -hmm. It's not a courtroom. Nobody's under oath. They can't be forced to tell the story. What we do is raise things in the legislature that they are then obliged to answer to the media outside because I think you probably know in this line of work, if you fib, lie, evade, dodge the media, you're playing with the risk of ending your career. Sure, yeah. So that's the necessary role of the media, and we as the opposition have to basically set it up so that the media have the chance to ask those probing questions. Mm -hmm. 
And that's an entirely appropriate thing in a parliamentary democracy. And, you know, there's that famous old Winston Churchill line that parliamentary democracy is the worst of all uh, democratic systems, except for everything else. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think we're seeing what's happening in, whether it's the USA or Hungary or, you know, other different systems in the world. We look and think, you know, I think parliamentary democracy is pretty darn good. It's highly flexible. It adjusts quickly to circumstances. You know, Boris Johnson goes into the ICU, so bingo, you've got someone there who's mm-hmm. very capable who can be the acting prime minister in an hour. Yeah. So there are a lot of strengths to parliamentary democracy, which we can't forget. And the cost of doing business is it can get pretty uh, grumpy at times. Sure. <laughs> Now, I have a personal bone to pick with you, Mr. Wilkinson. In October, there were memes going around BC Liberal Twitter, most notably from Jazz Joe Hall, that made fun of David Eby doing yoga. Oh, now, here we go. Now, I was not, <laughs> I want to be clear, I wasn't offended for David Eby. I was offended as a yogi. And we've seen federal politicians also make fun of yoga, and sometimes it blurs this genderized type of insult. Can you promise me that your party will lay off the yoga jokes moving forward? I will promise you 100% with all of my lifetime aspirations and everything (laughs) else that I will never be criticizing people with yellow Labrador retrievers, people who do Pilates, people who go out in tight bicycling every day that they're in Vancouver rain or shine, None of those things would be criticized because I do all of them. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, you got to take all of this to the great assault. If someone <laughs> wants to criticize me for doing Pilates, I'll just roll my eyes and say, yeah, they're just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and as a yoga practitioner, it's interesting. My brother was a petroleum engineer in the USA, you know, a classically kind of uh, establishment job. Mm-hmm. And he was flying so much he got, uh, stiffened up and didn't like it. He's a very active cyclist and quite mm-hmm. an active hiker. But he said, well, he started going to yoga class and that did the job, but he wasn't having the necessary kind of rigor to do it regularly. So he went out and got himself certified as yoga instructor, which meant he had to show up to teach the class. Oh, right. Yeah. So there you have senior petroleum engineer in Texas who wink, wink on the side as yoga instructor. <laughs> And and to be clear, you know, I don't think the BC Liberals were the worst defenders of this. I think there were some there was a lot of rhetoric from like Peter McKay and, and some people in the Conservative Party of Canada that I felt were being unfair. Like they were they were basically making the joke that yoga was not manly as a way to get at Justin Trudeau. And that well, was something I did my not appreciate. The petroleum engineer about that. he would laugh and say do this pose with me for 30 seconds yeah it's hard it's it's a workout and there's various different types no you know it's it's kind of fundamental to who we are in this country that you don't judge people by their choices in life you know it's come Mm -hmm. to up with this whole face mask thing there was this fuss and bother 10 days ago of some people purporting to judge other people for wearing face masks during this COVID epidemic. That's their choice. That's their, leave it, it's their own business. Mm-hmm. As long as they're not, you know, um, chewing into the supply of the medically necessary for hospitals and paramedics and the like, 
Who cares? That's their yeah, business. Absolutely. So, I, you know, live and let live. That's got to be the kind of core principle that I work on is if you're not doing anybody any harm, then who cares if you ride a purple bicycle upside down? I don't care. It's your choice. <laughs> I haven't tried that workout yet, but um, <laughs> I might be able to do that in my condo, so we'll try it. <laughs> a lot of British Columbians are anxious. They're worried about the future, both short-term and long-term. But I'm curious about you personally, just on a personal level. How are you holding up? Are you worried at all? Well, you know, I look at this stuff in perspective that, you know, take my mom. She was born, she died last year, but she was born in the 1920s in Northern England. Her dad was uh, working in a shipyard. They were poor. There was no indoor plumbing, no hot water. To have a bath, you put a metal tub on the floor in a tiny little house and boiled water on the stove and poured into the tub. I was in that tub myself when we <laughs> lived there briefly, uh, moving from Australia to Canada. And there was no indoor plumbing at all. Mm. So she then lived through the Depression. Her dad was unemployed for about five years. And sadly, the thing that got his career going again in 1937, uh, they're allowed to build battleships again after the uh, treaty that ended World War One expired. Right. So building military ships saved his family from desperate poverty. Then went to World War II. You know, my mom spent six years in the Royal Air Force. My dad spent eight years in the British Army. Wow. And that was the prime of life for them. They then came out of that with nothing, like nothing. And so, you know, you look around our way of life and think, you know, we got free high-quality health care. We got free good quality K-12 education. We got heavily subsidized higher education that's available to everybody. Um, you know, you can say that things could be better for lots of people, and that's always a valid concern. But we're pretty fortunate in perspective. So for myself personally, I always just count my blessings every day. I've got a, an interesting life. I've been very fortunate all the way along. I've got happy, healthy children. I, you know, I'm, I'm not unemployed right now. Mm -hmm. And so think of the people whose life dreams are being thrown against the rocks right now, and they are filled with uncertainty and stress. Those are the people I worry about, not about me. Mm -hmm. Are you naturally inclined to be an optimist? I think you have to be to be in this line of work. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's a guy who... Uh, I mean, unless you want to be in opposition the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah. You might know of Leonard Krogh, who was an NDP member for about 10 years and quit to become mayor of Nanaimo. Mm -hmm. And he's a very smart, canny, funny guy. And he maintains constantly that um, he's actually got it really good. It's uh, surprising how we go from day to day thinking that we will live in a democratic society and uh, there'll probably be enough to eat and there's the prospect of employment for just about everybody we do our level best to take care of the people who are disadvantaged and the people who are disabled. Mm -hmm. So let's get on with it. And uh, Leonard's got a lot of wisdom there. And, you know, I can say that now because he's a former NDP. I'd never <laughs> say it while he was actually in office. But, uh, there's a lot to be said for that, that our job is to optimize this for everybody, to make sure that British Columbia is a place where everybody has that optimism, where there's opportunity for everybody, and to come back to where we started that flight attendant who's out of work right now, that woman who had to close her hair salon commercial drive, we got to be in the mode of saying the provincial government is looking out for you. 
Mm -hmm. There are ways through this. You will get through the other side and you will have employment and opportunity. Your kids are going to get well-educated. You're going to be safe and sound and worry about the, you know, what you're going to do this afternoon, not whether or not you're going to have a job in six months. Sure. And as we wrap up, I think that's a great way to sort of end, end the podcast, but I do have to ask you one question. When David Eby was on the podcast, I asked him to say a nice thing about you, and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing for David Eby. Well, in the legislature, you know, there are 87 people who, by and large, are very committed to their role. They take it very seriously. They want to do well. They want British Columbians to be successful. That applies to David Eby just as it applies to everybody else in that room. Mm -hmm. So David's a smart guy. He's committed to what he does. He is capable. I just happen to disagree with him on about 80% of what he has to say. (laughs) And, you know, you shouldn't get us wrong. David, when we see each other on the street, we kind of laugh at each other because we know that we're um, fulfilling our respective roles. It's a lot like when you're a lawyer on opposite sides in a case and you're pleading the case in front of the judge. You tell the judge the other guy's lost in space, doesn't know what he's doing, has it all wrong, is confused about the evidence, didn't do his job properly. And then you go for lunch and say, so how have you been? (laughs) So it's just the nature of the beast. Well, it's also a sign of a healthy democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other countries in the world, you'd be punching each other in the face or (laughs) letting the air out of their tires or threatening to burn their house down. You don't do that in Canada. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice that we don't do that here. (laughs) Mr. Wilkinson, where should people go to stay connected with the BC Liberals through this COVID crisis and in general? Well, bcliberal.ca, we have town halls that we're doing basically every other Wednesday. The one uh, this past Wednesday had just over 10,000 people on it. The one before that had 14,000 people. Wow. And uh, we're actually inviting the media to those things so that I got cross-examined on the contents by CBC the following morning. So we are being an open, fully participatory party like this podcast. I'm happy to answer any question from anybody, anytime. And that's what we'd like to see from our premier is someone who's prepared to show his face and tell us what the plan is, answer questions about it. And I don't think that's unduly partisan. You know, that's what we're trying to do as a party is be completely available and open and transparent. That's why we're being so clear in supporting Bonnie Henry and her work on the epidemic. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'll be clear in our critique of the government's lack of an economic plan as the next few weeks and months roll out. Well, Mr. Wilkinson, I'm not going to speak on the premier, but I'm going to speak on you. I appreciate your time. We are certainly in unique circumstances, and I know you are keeping very busy. But I think as we both agree, it is important for all members of elected government, whether they're in governance or in opposition, to do as much as possible to communicate with the constituents and with British Columbians. And I think you being here is evidence to that. And I know that many in your caucus are communicating regularly with British Columbians as well. I know that Jazz Johal has a great newsletter, by the way. I really do appreciate it. So with that, I just want to wish you and your family the best of health. And I do want to thank you for your time to chat with me today. And all the very best to you, and I'll have a word with Jazz about that yoga stuff. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) People, he is the leader of the BC Liberals and quite possibly your next Premier of British Columbia. He is Andrew Wilkinson, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.